Would you turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 4 this morning? Gospel of John chapter 4. If you need a Bible, we have several back here on our resource table. Please grab one, and uh, you can just keep it open this morning. We'll be looking at a number of things here in John 4. Beginning in verse 1, let me read this extended text to us this morning. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sechar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? 
Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. All right, so that's a long passage, obviously, this morning, and there is so much here that we're actually going to break this into a two-week uh, sermon. And so today we're going to focus in on what will essentially be part A of this, which is we're going to focus in on the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and the implications of Christ for her as well as for us. And then next week, we're going to consider some of the larger themes of worship and evangelism that we find here, and also what those things mean for us. So just as a reminder, if you were here last week, we looked at uh, the last part of chapter three, and we looked at the story of how John the Baptist's influence was waning. His influence as a teacher uh, was starting to subside because now Jesus had come onto the scene and John the Baptist himself had pointed out Jesus to his followers and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So not only were um, just normal everyday people coming out to hear Jesus' teaching and to be baptized by his followers, but also many of John the Baptist's followers had ceased to follow John and were now following Jesus. And this bothered some of John's disciples because they were in a sense bleeding people, right? They were bleeding followers. John the Baptist, though, was not bothered at all. He said, this is what we wanted to have happen. He must increase. I must decrease. Those were his famous words. But we also saw that this was essentially the fourth vignette or scene in which John, the gospel writer here, is presenting Jesus as being superior to things that have come before. And we walked through these last week. If you remember, this started in chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, essentially rendering the Jewish purification jars useless. And we saw that in that scene, um, Jesus is this new wine that is greater than the old Wine. From there, Jesus cleared the temple in Jerusalem. And John tells us that um, as he cleared the temple, he said, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up. 
But he was talking about the temple of his body. And in doing so, Jesus is proclaiming that he is the new temple. And we see this in John later where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. So Jesus is actually the new doorway. He is the way that we encounter God. We don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And you may have noticed that that was a component of his conversation with the woman at the well this morning. It regards worship. Am am I supposed to worship in Jerusalem or am I supposed to worship at this other place? And Jesus is effectively saying, I am the way. I am the new temple. Third, Jesus has his exchange with Nicodemus at the beginning of chapter 3. And in that exchange, we saw that Jesus blows away his preconceived notions of what it means to be a good Jew or a good follower of God. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And Jesus describes himself as the serpent lifted, lifted up in the wilderness, which alludes to this story from the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, in which Moses is told by God to construct this snake that he holds up to the people because God has sent snakes out among the people because of their sin. And when they are bitten, they're supposed to look at this snake that Moses is holding up. And if they do, they are healed, which is just this bizarre story. And yet Jesus says, that is what I am. It's as if everyone in our world is being poisoned by sin and death and the effects of those things. But if you will look to me, you will find healing and life. And then finally, the fourth vignette was what we mentioned a minute ago. Story of John the Baptist recognizing that his influence was decreasing and that Jesus's influence was increasing. And we see that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist even. Today we continue in this train of thought as Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and we learn that Jesus is greater than the old water. Jesus brings this new water. He brings this living water and if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And in many ways, this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well is like the mirror image of Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus. So if you take the exchange with Nicodemus and you like flip it, you get this story. Um, So let me just give you an example of what I mean. Um, In this account, Jesus meets a woman instead of a man. The woman is of low status as opposed to Nicodemus's high status. Nicodemus would have been thought of as a righteous man. Uh, More than likely, this woman would not have been thought of in that way. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Um, Jesus comes to this woman during the day. The conversation with Nicodemus is done seemingly in secret, whereas this happens in a very public place. Um, Nicodemus was a quote-unquote good Jew. This woman is a Samaritan, the opposite of a good Jew, which we'll talk about more in a moment. We're not told how Nicodemus ultimately responds to Jesus. We don't really get a sense of what does Nicodemus do with this information that Jesus has given to him. But we know exactly how this woman responds and we see the effects of it. And and then also Nicodemus, to our knowledge, brings no one to Christ. Whereas this woman goes to her town and like literally brings people to Jesus. So those are some of the contrasts we see in the story of Nicodemus. 
and the story of the Samaritan woman, but there are also many similarities. First of all, Jesus knows these people, right? In both cases, he demonstrates supernatural knowledge of the person. And this tracks with what John, the gospel writer, has told us about Jesus. At the end of chapter 2, what he said was, Jesus didn't need anyone to bear witness about people to him, right? Jesus didn't need someone else to explain another person's motives or intentions or like what was going on in their mind or in their heart. John says, Jesus knew what was inside of people. He had this omniscient, supernatural clarity about what was going on in the minds and hearts of the people he encountered. And this is true in the case of Nicodemus. Jesus is clearly speaking to unspoken questions that Nicodemus has. And with the Samaritan woman, Jesus clearly knows her life. And he knows what's going on in her world. So he knows these people. But then next, Jesus speaks in like an intentionally obtuse way. And this is one of those things about Christ that people find, I think, baffling and confounding. He'll have these exchanges with people where it seems like an opportune moment to quote-unquote, win someone to his way, and then he will say something that is challenging or hard to understand or, in some cases, just downright strange. And maybe we tend to think that Jesus is um, out kind of in Judea or in Galilee trying to persuade people through his rhetoric Primarily, but then he'll say something like, Tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, right? Um, Or he'll say something like, You must be born again, or I have living water and if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again, or go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me, or whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. So Jesus says these challenging or obtuse things all the time, but I don't think he's simply trying to be hard to understand. I think his specific words are meant for specific people, and they are based on his omniscient knowledge of those people. They are words that are based on what he knows about what's going on in their mind and their heart, their life situation, their spiritual need. Jesus knows them. And so he's speaking to them in a very intentional way to elicit questions or to reveal idols in their heart um, or to um, present a bar even, a a level of challenge. Like, do you really love me? Do you really want to follow me? Then let's see. Do you really, are you really willing to do the things that you're saying? Another similarity between these stories is that both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman initially received Jesus's words in the most literal way. Do you notice that? With Nicodemus, Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus goes, how in the world can I go back into my mother and be born again, right? Just the most literal, uh, earthly, plain, naturalistic way. Um, 
Sir, give me this living water, so not only will I not be thirsty anymore, but I'm not going to have to haul water back and forth from this well anymore, right? Just the most literal understanding of what Jesus is saying. And it's like two ships in the night, right? It's like Jesus is speaking way up here, and these people are hearing him down here. I'm understanding him at this level, but he's really talking about something that's above and beyond even the things I am thinking about. Uh, A little history here. Samaritans pop up periodically throughout the Gospels. Uh, You have this woman. You have famously the parable of the Good Samaritan. But who are these people? I think that's a big question that people have or something that people are a bit confused about. If you were here for our study of the minor prophets, you've potentially got a great foundation for understanding the cultural dynamics that are at play here. Um, because during the time of Christ, these cultural distinctions between Jews and Samaritans uh, dated back centuries to the time of the prophets. So during the age of the Hebrew kings, David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel was one nation, right? It was one nation that was underneath uh, the royal throne of David and Solomon. But after Solomon's death, ultimately there was a period of unrest in Israel, and the nation eventually split in two, into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And both of those kingdoms were made up of Hebrews originally. This was all Israel. It split. You had Hebrews in the north and Hebrews in the south. But the northern kingdom, which continued to be called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah, or what eventually becomes known as Judea in the Gospels. The northern kingdom of Israel found its capital city in a place called Samaria. And so sometimes that would be used to describe the entire kingdom. It would be called Israel or it would be called Samaria. And so the people in that area over time came to be known as Samaritans. But there's, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just a geographical separation because the northern kingdom from the jump, from the time they separated abandoned the monotheistic worship of Yahweh God in favor of more of a syncretistic polytheism. In other words, they retained some elements of Judaism, but they also borrowed heavily from the pagan Canaanite religions, and they effectively created this new thing that was not Judaism. It wasn't the worship of God. It was this new thing where we're borrowing from all of these other pagan religions, and we've just sort of created our own thing. So God sent prophets in the Old Testament to those people, as well as to the southern kingdom, but God sent prophets to the northern kingdom to call them back to faith in God and God alone. And yet the people didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to listen to it. They completely abandoned the way of God. And after several hundred years of God sending prophets to them, calling them back to repentance, eventually the Assyrians were allowed to come in and overtake the northern kingdom. And the Assyrians carried many of the people away into exile, and because they were one of the predominant superpowers at the time, they also had conquered peoples from other parts of the region that they exiled to the northern kingdom of Israel. So they carry people away, but they also bring people to 
that area as well. And so you wind up with this mixture of ethnic Hebrews, but then also other ethnic groups from different places. And over time, these people intermarried, right? They lived life together, and over the centuries, essentially a new ethnic group of people came to be known as Samaritans. And as a people, they continued largely in the syncretistic religion of their ancestors, which was, again, this mixture of Judaism and paganism. So fast forward to the time of Christ. Good Jews did not associate with Samaritans. They were considered half-breeds. They were considered non-believers, right? Uh, They were generally considered unclean people by the Jewish standards of cleanliness. And so, so think about racial prejudice today and all of the like caricaturistic stereotypes that racist people can hold and perpetuate. And many of those same things were levied against the Samaritans. Like they're all dishonest or they're all criminals or they're all sexually immoral and, and on and on and on and on. So that's going on during this period of time, and that's the cultural situation that precedes Jesus' exchange with this woman. So look with me this morning, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sechar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So we find Jesus here um, traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. And he's passing through the region that is traditionally called Samaria. And he winds up at this historically significant place, Jacob's well. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is the only place in the Bible where this well is mentioned. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the story of Jacob, interestingly. Um, It's only mentioned here in the Gospel of John. However, it is believed that this corresponds with the story of Jacob in Genesis, um, and in particular in Genesis 33, where Jacob buys land from Shechem. And it's ultimately the place, we, we saw it, it says Joseph's field. Um, it's ultimately believed to be the place where after the Israelites left Egypt and came into the land of Canaan eventually, they had carried the bones of Joseph with them from their time in Egypt, and this was the place that Jacob had given to Joseph and where Joseph would ultimately come to be buried. And um, today, this would be the area that is known as the West Bank area in Israel, and you can go there to this day, and believe it or not, um, this well is still there, Um, and there's some pretty good historical data to suggest that we're talking about the same well that John would have been talking about here in chapter 4. Surprise, surprise, there is an Orthodox Christian church that has been built on that site. The well is inside the church today. The church is called the Church of St. Fotina which is historically and traditionally the name that is given to this woman, the Samaritan woman, St. Fotina 
is what the church has known her as throughout the ages. One thing to take notice of here is verse 6. Jesus was wearied from his journey. And we have to remember the dual nature of Christ, that he was both God and man. We can perhaps tend to forget um, that that is true. We can perhaps tend to imagine that Jesus was mostly God most of the time, and that his godness, that his deity allowed him to maybe not experience things that we would experience. And yet here he is clearly fatigued. This is at least a three-day walking journey from Judea to Galilee. And so Jesus is tired, right? Jesus had um, low energy at times, just like anybody else would have. Jesus would also get sleepy and go to sleep at night, like his deity does not supersede those things. He is God and man, and that does not make him less God, by the way. It does not make him more man, by the way. It makes what Scripture says of him true, that the word, he is this word that created heaven and earth, but that he has also become flesh and dwelt among us. He wasn't just God in a skin suit. He was God and man. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For, the, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans aren't just Gentiles to the Jews, right? It's like a whole other thing. It's like there are Jews, and then there are Gentiles, but then there are Samaritans, right? That's the kind of distinction that's being made. But Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So first this morning, I want us to see that Jesus sees someone who should be unseen. Jesus sees someone who should be unseen. For a Jewish male to interact with a Samaritan woman was virtually unheard of in Jesus' culture. Even for a Jewish male to ask a Samaritan woman to serve him in some way was unheard of in Jesus' culture. It wasn't that the Jews treated Samaritans as slaves or servants. They wouldn't even do that. It was like they acted like they were invisible, as if they didn't exist at all. I don't acknowledge your presence. I don't talk to you. I don't ask you to do anything, even if that something is for me, like give me a drink of water. We don't associate, right? We don't interact. That's what's going on here. So Jesus is definitely breaking social protocol in this moment by even speaking to this woman or asking her to do anything, and she's taken aback, isn't she? Like, how is it that you're even talking to me? How is it that you ask me for a drink? She's literally saying, like, what's going on right now? Right? What's happening? Verse 10 is key here. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Samaritans were syncretistic religiously. That means they had borrowed from a lot of different religions. They had Jewish roots, 
But they had also over the years adopted these other practices outside of Judaism. But here's what's interesting. They still considered Abraham and Jacob to be their forefathers because they were in many ways, right? And they still thought of the Torah or what we think of as the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. They thought of the Torah as being from God and as of being a holy book, but they did not extend that to the rest of what we would think of as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They really only thought it about the Torah. And what's interesting here is some scholars believe that when Jesus refers to the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, that he is using language that was often used for the Torah. The Torah included not only the story of creation, but it included the story of the Exodus. It included uh, the law that God had given to the people through Moses. It was a gift from God. But it's as Jesus is saying here, if you really knew your Torah, right? If you really knew the gift of God and recognized who I am, you wouldn't be bothering gathering water anymore. You would see that from the beginning, everything has been pointing to me. You would recognize that you could ask me and I could give you living water. So Jesus sees this woman. But then number two, Jesus not only sees her, he sees her, doesn't he? He doesn't just acknowledge her presence. He doesn't just speak to her. He knows her, right? And this is really where she starts to wake up to what's going on. This isn't just some traveler who's speaking in riddles. This is something more. Jesus tells her to go and get her husband, and this leads her to reveal what he already knows about her. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, right? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Literally, Christ has come from the Jews, hasn't he? But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We're really going to dig into that next week. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What's interesting here to me is that Jesus seemingly calls out the woman's sin, doesn't he? He calls out her promiscuity, he implicates her, and yet he does so without condemnation. It's almost like she tries to change the subject a little bit, right? What you've said is true. You don't have a husband right now. The person that you're living with isn't your husband. You've had all these other husbands. You've been divorced various times, seemingly. Um, and so you've spoken truthfully to me, but then the woman like turns it suddenly to talking about worship. It's like, whoa, 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 the spotlight's on me. Let, me. let me get into a theological discussion with this person, right? 
So that's, that's fascinating to me. Um, Jesus calls out this woman's sin, and yet he does it without malice. He does it without condemnation. And this is what John told us in the last chapter that Jesus had come to do. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Two weeks ago, we asked the question, what is the gospel? And what, what I said was that the gospel is not simply a like, prescripted presentation about Jesus, but rather the gospel is Jesus. The fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that he was arrested despite it having never sinned and that he was tortured and that he was crucified and that he died and that he rose from the dead and that he appeared and that he ascended, that that. All of that is good news for us. And there's all kinds of good news that flows from the primary good news of his incarnation, that the word became flesh. We are forgiven of sins. We are washed clean. We're freed from death. We're declared righteous before a holy God. We're adopted into God's family as beloved children. We will dwell with him forever. All incredible things. Yet had Jesus not stepped down into our reality, had the word not become flesh and come to us and dwelled among us, none of this would be possible. Right? This is what takes us back to John 3.16. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is what John said all the way back in his prologue in chapter 1. And it's like the things that he said in chapter 1 are coming to fruition in a physical way with this woman. That true light is coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world largely did not know him. He came to his own, he came to the Jews, and yet they, they didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, as, as this good news of his incarnation gets expanded beyond the Jews, literally to the whole world, all who did, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Like, this is what's happening here in this moment. Now, notice this. This woman doesn't come to Jesus. He, he steps into her reality. He sees her, and he sees her. Jesus extends grace to her just by simply acknowledging her presence and her existence, but then he also illuminates her need for a Savior, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. But if you will just ask me, I will give you living water, and you will never thirst again. Like, I see you. I see your sin and your failure. I see your life. I see the things that you've been looking for in relationships and in sex and in marriages. But I don't condemn you. I love you. But there's another way. Right? If you really want to be satisfied, if you really want to never thirst again, only I can give that to you. Now, friends, listen, the exact same thing is true for each and every one of us. Jesus has stepped into our existence. He has infiltrated our reality. He sees us, right? 
in that he has come in a very literal way, but yet he also sees us. He sees what's in your mind and in your heart. He sees what goes on in your home behind closed doors. He sees what you do when no one is watching. And you know, most of us, I think, in this room would say we believe in God. And yet what betrays that stated belief often is what we do when we think no one else is watching. And there are things that we will do and think and watch and say in front of the God of the universe that we would never dream of doing in front of other people. Because what's really going on is we think, I don't don't think he's actually there. So what does that say of your view of God? But here's the thing. Jesus sees our brokenness on full display, and church, he doesn't condemn us in our sin. He has come so that we might be saved. And listen, our sin should separate us from him. Just like the Jews and the Samaritans were separated. He shouldn't give us any thought or attention. He shouldn't turn his affection to us. We are incapable of good. There are none who are righteous, Scripture says, not even one. God, who is perfectly holy, should have nothing to do with us. He shouldn't even acknowledge our existence. And yet God so loves the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, meaning not just Jews, but whoever, even those dirty Samaritans, if they would even ask him for living water, he would give it to them. Despite hundreds of years of living outside of his will. So that they would not perish, but have eternal life. Church, is this the water that you're drinking What Jesus describes for us is not just something that like gets us out of hell and into heaven. He's describing something that goes into us and fills us and like wells up and crescendos out into eternal life. That's the imagery that he uses. Is is that your experience of the gospel? Not just this get-out-of-jail-free card, but is it something that has been transformative to your life? Something that is growing and maturing and developing and welling up within you to eternal life? Is that the water that you're drinking? Or are you still hoping that the old water, the material things of this world, the physical things of this world, the hopes that everybody else thinks are going to satisfy. Is that, is that really the water you're still drinking? Because if so, if you will only ask, he will give you water that is alive, and you will never thirst again. Let us pray. Oh, Father. Open our hearts this morning to the message of your gospel. To see you as 
not simply this wrathful or vengeful God, but instead for who you truly are. This God who loves so deeply that even though we should be separated from you, you have stepped into our existence, that you literally became flesh and dwelt among us so that we wouldn't be condemned and might be saved. And I pray this morning, Father, in my own heart, that the water that I'm seeking would truly be that of you and your gospel, that of Christ alone, not the water of materialism or money or power or sex, not the water of this world, but the new water of Christ. Help me, Father, help us as a church to truly desire the water that only you can give. And may we, Lord, seek in all ways to turn from the other things that would draw us away from that, from that never-ending well. And may we trust it. We thank you for the way that you have made for us to be united to the Father and to be cleansed of our sin and our failures. And I pray, Father, this morning that we are encouraged by this good news and that we are spurred along not only in our personal devotional life but spurred along as agents of your kingdom in our world seeking to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and seeking to love you with everything we have help us Lord thank you for your grace it's in your name we pray amen